Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the middle that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. If you listen on the Entail app, that's E-N-T-A-L-E, photos, links and videos of what we're talking about will pop up as you listen. Have a look. Hello, I'm Annabelle and I'm absolutely fine, but for various sort of lockdown and, you know, domestic reasons, I'm recording this in my bedroom. Um, and I just, as we were just about to start, I glanced over at my bedside table and um, it's a really small bedside table. Um, and on it, uh, teetering, crammed together, I can see some CBD oil, a bottle of progesterone, bottle of melatonin, bottle of magnesium L-theanate, a face laser, rather than a Jewish <laughs> space laser, um, some Flexitol heel balm, which is actually very good, not sexy, but very good, um, and um, an eye mask, but the sort of very intense eye mask that you wrap around your head and fastens with Velcro at the back, so you look like you have a sort of catastrophic eye injury because no light must go in, nothing must come in or go out. A, a tube of soothing universal repair balm. Universal, really? Is it going to soothe my soul? It's got Immortel in it. So here's hoping. Some lip balm and, um, and a series of notes written in aggressive red pen by me um, that I took when I was seeing the healer that in an act of desperation I've recently started healing. So maybe I'm not so fine after all. Emily, <laughs> how are you? Well, I'm absolutely fine, but I went for, uh, I'd like to say a power walk, but I was more like a sort of desperate walk um, around the park in the snow this morning. And about two hours afterwards, the imprint of my headphones is still on my face. <laughs> And um, I figure this is just my face now um, that just will absorb all of the um, or rather not absorb any of the shocks that it gives, including noise cancelling headphones, which just feels desperate. All bounce back is gone. Exactly. I have no elasticity to emotional or physical or otherwise. Anyway, um, this week we are thrilled to have Sophie Williams on the podcast Sophie is a leading anti-racism advocate, activist and the author of Anti-Racist Ally and the upcoming Millennial Black, which is out in April and is a business manifesto for black women. Her career started in advertising and she now runs her own gaffe, working on marketing campaigns for the likes of Sex Education, The End of the Fucking World and The Crown. She is also the co-founder of Culture Heroes, a non-profit organisation dedicated to raising non-white representation at a senior level in the advertising and the creative industries. Now, she is here to talk to us about what we can do to be authentic allies. Sophie, how are you? Hi, I'm fine, but I did think it was a good idea to renovate my own bathroom, and it turns <laughs> out it's a lot harder than I anticipated. <laughs> how far have you got? Oh, it's bad. It's really, really bad. I, uh, so in October, a week before, yeah, I think a week before my book came out, we were like, right, we don't need a bath anymore, going to knock that out. And then we're going to, like, retile everything. But before you can retile, you have to untile. And in doing that, we found out that our plasterboard was rotten. So that all had to come out, so we didn't have any walls. And I live in a really open-plan apartment, so that was actually the only walls that we had in the house. So they were gone. (laughs) I mean, I can't even go into how bad it is, but since October... Bathroom. Do you have a loo, Sophie? Do you have a loo? We do. We have a toilet. And do you have a wall separating it from the rest of the house yet? We do. I mean, when you put it like that, I have everything I need. But in a much more real <laughs> sense, I don't. You've done a whole renovation, haven't you? Well, kind of. It's a listed building. And so we've done stuff like, you know, paint and whatever. And we've got planning permission in at the moment to build a wall which sounds very Trump but isn't meant to be but (laughs) it's because at the moment 
because lockdown, whatever, we're both working from home. If we both have a call at the same time, that means one of us has to do that call from the bathroom. So I've done so many meetings and interviews and whatever, like sitting on the floor of the shower and uh, you can't go on like that. So need to build a little upstairs wall, make that into a study, both able to work. I've got a friend who um, spent quite a lot of lockdown working in the car. Yes, we considered that. We don't have a car though, so more investments. (laughs) You can't buy a car to work in a car. It doesn't seem like the right move. Sophie, thank you so much for coming on. We read your book um, and we loved your book. And first I want to say how brave you are for lots of reasons, but not least because you have become, you know, really a, 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 a focus point and a spokesperson and an activist And you are a very shy woman, aren't you? Oh, yeah. I don't like any of this. (laughs) I mean, you know, even doing this is probably going to sting. Yeah. I mean, no shade. It's not about about your podcast in particular. I'm getting better at it, but I do find it's not my natural space. How hard was it at the beginning when you had to you had to talk and you are not a, a person who carries around a soapbox under their arms? Well, my degree's in theatre, so I'm fine with, like, doing stuff like that because that's not you. That's just you doing something else that someone else wants you to do, which is fine. So I guess I was just a bit intimidated at first, but the way I often express it, and your listeners can't see, but I'm not even looking at the screen. I've just realised that I'm just, like, looking at a wall just beyond (laughs) the Zoom call that we're on. Um, You started as a sort of corporate person, didn't you? You started in advertising. You had a sort of, you know, a a, a very admirable trajectory. You were a coup, a COO. You increased, you were instrumental in increasing profits by 90% in growing departments by 100% and all this, you know, brilliant stuff was going on. What was your experience like in London advertising? It was quite varied because I've worked in quite a variety of types of agencies. And I think, well, it's worth noting that I started in advertising by accident. And I think that's really sort of a narrative of a lot of what um, my story is. A lot of what I've done is sort of by accident or being open to opportunities or just sort of seeing what happens. And so uh, a few years ago, I guess I got a call from someone at MNC Saatchi and they were like, do you want to come for an interview? And I didn't work in advertising or anything similar at the time. And I was like all right. So then I went for an interview with Saatchi's and that um, was very corporate, although they didn't like to think that they are. And that was much more of like a media space than an advertising agency. And so what I quickly found was that those bigger spaces are very white, very male, very homogenous, very sort of think they're cool, might not really actually be that cool. And so I found more of a niche for myself in smaller agencies and that in a smaller type of agency is where I became a COO. I was hired to be a head of production, became COO, became CFO of the uh, American um, Incorporation. And yeah, advertising is such an interesting space because it is so culturally influential. We who work in advertising really have a big say in what you see and who you see and what messages you get from that and I don't think people who are doing that job often consider the sort of cultural responsibility that they're holding and so I guess that's probably part of why I started talking more about these things because I was almost always the only black woman in a space and your listeners can't see me but you obviously can I'm a very light-skinned basically blue-eyed black woman like I have such a high proximity to whiteness and still I was finding the things that were going on to be unacceptable 
And so I think that really was my primer going into situations where I was junior or where I was really underrepresented and saying this isn't good enough has sort of set me up for the work that I'm doing now. And you were always good at saying this isn't good enough. Yeah, because things were never good enough. <laughs> yeah. And and because uh, I think that's the thing, isn't it? When you look back, I mean, I'm a 46 year old white woman who looks back at opportunities in in my career or at places that I've worked and been so I think ignorant is really the only way to to do it but also you know fighting the woman fight as it were representation for women it does you know and you're very good at this in your book but you know it does mean I've been focusing only on that thing Mm -hmm. and not the whole broad spectrum of inclusivity um, and uh, and I feel, you know... I Actually, feel... um, Sophie, can you explain to our listeners, because I think that people find it very confusing, what people mean when they talk about intersectionality? Yeah, absolutely. So when I think about myself, I don't have to pick, am I black or am I a woman? Am I cisgendered? Am I in a heterosexual relationship? Am I this or that? I'm all of those things all of the time. And we can't just separate one part of those out from ourselves. And so in a society that was made for and by essentially white men, whiteness and maleness as two separate facets are both seen as good or seen as essentially the baseline that everyone starts from. Then everything other than that is a deviation from that. And I think what intersectionality recognises is when you are a woman, but you're a white woman, you have one area of marginalisation presuming that you are an able-bodied, cisgendered, heterosexual white woman, for example. But then the more marginalised identities you have, blackness, gayness, non-gender binary, whatever, they don't sort of cancel each other out. They layer on top of each other as additional layers of marginalisation. And so when you're marginalised, you can be marginalised, you can be fighting, you can be underrepresented, not just in one area at a time, but in all kinds of areas, simultaneously overlapping. And so you can't fight for just one thing because I think Audre Lorde said there's no such thing as a single issue struggle because we don't live single issue lives. We're all made up of all of these different things. And so I think intersectionality recognises those overlaps of marginalisation and how they reinforce each other rather than cancelling each other out. A long-winded explanation, sorry, but it's quite... oh. And Kimberly Crenshaw is the person who is the um, originator of that term, who is a black woman. And it was about it was in the eighties, wasn't it? Yeah, eighty six, I think. Yeah, and um, and so and so really, that means that if you're a feminist, then really you should's a funny word, but you know you want to be arguing for the rights of all marginalised people. Well, it depends how you define feminist, and I think. So often we talk about, at the moment, we talk about white feminism because, and that's what I was seeing a lot in advertising, to go back to that as an example. We'd have these committees and these organisations and we'd talk about um, representation and we'd talk about diversity, but often when we got into the room, it was a bunch of people who looked very similar, who wanted to make things better, primarily for women. Women was the focus. And there was no thought about, like, you know, is this space accessible for disabled women? Is this space accessible for racially marginalised women? Is this space accessible for queer women? There was none of that additional thought. It was was mostly like people thinking, this is me and I want things to be better for me, instead of thinking, here is the widest 
possible representation that I want things to be better for. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It does. And I've written on my notes, I've written, I, I was trying to work out why I've written it. You remind me, I'd written the pie in capital letters. And I think what I meant by the pie was the idea that, you know, certainly as white women, you know, I, I started my career understanding that uh, professionally, a lot of other white women wouldn't be on my side. And, you know, when I talk about the pie, I think about thinking about there's enough to go round for everybody. So somebody else's success, whether it's a black able-bodied woman or, a, or whoever, whoever it is, it, it doesn't, it's not going to take away from mine. I just think the level of threat mm-hmm. is overfelt, over, um, it's sort of overrepresented. It, you know, just because, uh, because another type of person has a success doesn't mean, it, the pool's got bigger. I might have to work harder. There are more people in the race, sure. But it doesn't mean that there's, there's less there for me. And I think that that's something that, I think that's only just dawning on a lot of people. Yeah, generationally, I think that we were, and this is definitely something that I want to cover, that we want to cover, but that generation, we were brought up to believe that there's sort of only one person at the table, a one woman, let's say. Mm. So, so if there's only one woman... And, and one black are, person mm-hmm. at the table, and probably not the same person, then, you know, where's the diversity? Because, because you said in your book, you, a person can't be diverse. No. A, c- a collection of people can be diverse. Yeah, people love saying like, oh, I've got this, div- I've got this diverse person on my team. It's like, <laughs> you don't. You have a person who's not like you, but you don't have a diverse person. And even I was speaking to um, a DNI person, so someone whose job it is to look at the diversity and inclusion of a really big business recently. And they were like, oh, what I really want is I want a diverse team member to tell me what to do. I'm like, you can't have a diverse team member. You probably shouldn't be doing this job if you think you can. And you're being paid for this job. And you expect someone who's already marginalised to come in and do that job for you. I, like, I thought that was very interesting in your book when you talked about um, that those sort of jobs were given to people who were already fighting those things and, and expected to do it in their spare time. Yeah. And so it's sort of double the work and totally unsupported and siloed off. I think yeah. that's the idea that we're Yes, with no, guarantee, with no guarantee that changes will be made, but just the effort will make the corporation look good. Yeah, absolutely. Look, we're trying. Here's a task force of one diverse person. Absolutely. And so often, not only is there no guarantee that 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 will work, it's almost guaranteed that it won't. Because if it's not given budgets, if it's not given targets, if it's not given the support of people who are in those senior roles, who are able to make change, all we end up with is a group of like-minded people in a room together being like, this is shit, isn't it? And everyone's like, yeah, I know. And then they can't do anything about it. Because they don't know. And it's interesting, actually... Um, when I worked in uh, uh, as an intern in advertising when I was like 16 years old, um, my job was, there was for a car account, and my job was to watch all the other car adverts and write down what was what they all had in common and make sure that the people on the team knew what the things that they had to keep mentioning for cars that would make them industry standard. Well, if, if it's constantly re- repeating the old thing and not breaking through in, in any way or taking any kind of risk, then of course you're going to have the same thing repeated over and over again and it all looks the same and invariably it's talking to one kind of demographic yeah it's so, it's super interesting to me i mean we're, we're here really to talk mostly all sorts of things but mostly about your book about um allyship but your 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 new book millennial black mm-hmm. um is about black women primarily in the workplace isn't it yeah and am i right in thinking that when you were pitching it selling it talking to publishers about it they were slightly concerned that the market was saturated because <laughs> one book that was vaguely referencing black women in the workplace had already been written yeah absolutely so this experience in publishing has been really wild and really eye-opening in a whole host of ways. 
Um, but yes, that, that very first experience of putting that book out to pitch, um, which I did before Anti-Racist Ally, um, was really interesting because there was lots of interest and, you know, I was very lucky, several people were interested, had several bidders on it. But yeah, some people declined even initial meetings because they said, this is a saturated market. There is a book that talks to and about and by black women. And so actually we've got enough of those now, but thank you very much. <laughs> Just My the God. idea of saturation. I mean, it's like how many books are written about baking or... Churchill I mean, it's... or whatever, yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. Or white men in business or Sheryl Sandberg or Karen Brady or, I mean, you know, it's, 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 a, you know, it's a toe in the water. Yeah. But um, just to go back to Anti-Racist Ally. So um, you say in your book, I can't, I slightly can't believe I'm saying this out loud, that, you know, that racists are bad. It's not enough to say, I'm not racist. It's incredibly mm-hmm. passive. So you've got, I'm not racist. And then somewhere far away from here, I hope very far away from here, and I hope sort of disappearing fast, racists. But what about the grey bit in between? The bit that's more nuanced and the bit where you can make a difference and the bit where you can stand up and help. That's really where, where your, what your book's looking at, isn't it? Yeah, and I don't think that is necessarily in between those two states. I think it's the step past I'm not racist. Right. Because I think the step of I'm not racist is just, well, this is nothing to do with me, essentially. And then I think the next step that I want people to take is, I'm not racist, but this is to do with me. Because although we might not be consciously racist or consciously biased against any group, we all have unconscious biases and that could be about how we view fat people how we view queer people how we view asian people how we view black people whatever that is we're not bias free and so one saying i'm just not racist takes away the responsibility of you to do anything like this is nothing to do with me this is you know a separate group of bad people and then what i want is for people to be active allies and my work is primarily about race but I really believe that you can be an ally to any group that's marginalized that you're not a part of so I am not necessarily an anti-racist ally because I am someone who suffers from racism but I try to be a queer ally I try to be a trans ally I try to be all of these different things because if you're not suffering from it you can try and do something about it and so that I guess is having conversations that is that just starts with letting people know what you believe, not letting people know what you don't believe. So I'm not racist, like I don't believe that racist stuff. I'm anti-racist. I believe a- racism is bad and I believe that I can and want to do something about it. So I want people to go from that passive it's not about me state to that active here's what we're going to do state, here's what I'm going to do, and here's what I believe is important. You're very interesting in your book about making the space for discomfort. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and also being brave enough to be rude sometimes. And I suppose that's part of being an activist, isn't it? Of trying to make a difference. Yeah, I don't think we make a difference by saying, oh, excuse me, please, would you um, stop putting your knee on my neck? <laughs> I don't think that that's how we no. make change. I think we make change by going out and saying, you have to stop this now and here's what we're going to try and do. But I think the other part of being an activist is knowing that people have been doing this for a long time. You, me, stepping forward is helpful and it's important. But you, me, someone else is not going to be the one thing that makes it change. It's not going to change tomorrow. We have to understand that we're not working to 
six-month, two-year, five-year plans. We're working on generational plans. We're working in, like, geographic time. This is slow work, and we might not see the benefit of what we're doing immediately. That doesn't mean it's not valuable, and that doesn't mean we stop. It means that we're laying the foundations for things to continue to get iteratively tiny bits better over time. It's important to realise that now, isn't there, after a year where such momentum was gained, you don't just want that to have been some sort of fashionable flash in the pan. Mm -hmm. um, And then everybody comes out of lockdown and moves on. So it's important to realise that it's slow, important and hopefully steady and powerful. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's a lot of a lot of fear. I was nervous before this podcast of saying the wrong thing. And I think that, you know, I think, again, you wrote in your book that made me a little bit less nervous. You know, don't let the desire to be perfect overpower any chance you might have to do good. Yeah, like you're going to make mistakes. I make mistakes all the time. I used to talk about this all day, every day. Sometimes people are like, oh, actually, like when I first started writing on Instagram, which is where I first started putting out the stuff that became the basis of anti-racist ally. I talked a lot about minority people and people were like, that's not correct. And I was like, yes, it is. <laughs> it's not. It turns out it's not. And I had to listen to that feedback and I had to take it on. And like, like, however much you think you know, and probably the moment that you get satisfied that you know something, you don't know it. Because it's not only is it always changing and iterating and the conversation around this moves fast just terms change. Like when I first started writing, I was writing women with an X. That then got co-opted by TERFs and I couldn't use that anymore. Like we, it's a, it's a changing conversation and there's always more to learn and you're going to make mistakes. You just have to be comfortable saying, oh, I hadn't thought about it like that. I'm really sorry. Here's how I'm going to do it going forwards. I think you have to, I think you're absolutely right that it's very important to accept there is an, a changing and ever-evolving conversation. Or that otherwise, it's very easy to throw your hands in the air and go, I can't say anything anymore. And suddenly, you're a sort of old white man <laughs> saying, yeah. oh, political correctness gone mad. Um, exactly. But, you know, but the thing is, is, is you know, rather than exhausting marginalised people, I'm sorry, we're doing that to you today slightly by asking lots of questions. What do we do? What do we do? I mean, diversifying your social media feeds a good way to start, isn't it? Yeah, diversifying your, like when we're allowed outside, diversifying your friend group. And I don't mean like finding token people and being like, hi, you're black, do you want to have a coffee? (laughs) I just mean looking at who you surround yourself with and trying to let other voices into your sphere. I know, I I was, I felt so relieved when I read in your book saying, um, you say you should never ask marginalised people to provide you with all the answers to things that you can find out for yourself. And then you go, but I'm going to do this so your friends don't have to. How do you protect yourself from it? Because it must be exhausting. Yes. Um, When I say it, it sounds like a humble brag and it's not because it's bad. Um, But I'm not very good at protecting myself from that because I feel like it's important work that needs to be done. And I feel like, as we've mentioned already, I have a really high proximity to whiteness. My hair's wet at the moment, so it's tied up. But I normally have like quite a big 3C hair. And that's probably the biggest signifier of my blackness. And if I wanted to, I could straighten my hair, I could cut it off, I could tie it up, I could cover it, whatever. Other black people do not have that possibility to create space between themselves and their blackness. And their experience and I think we're seeing I don't know when this is going out but we're seeing at the moment a conversation that for example Candice Brathwaite's having about colorism and like there are so many ways in which I am privileged and if people are willing to listen to me 
And it's not lost on me that so many of the people who are being listened to and have been listened to in this past year are light-skinned black women, the sort of acceptable face of blackness. If people are willing to listen, then I'm going to keep talking until they're tired of it, even if I'm tired, because I have a privilege. And I think that those privileges, like we were saying earlier, they're responsibilities. And so I have a responsibility if people are listening to try and keep talking about this, even if it's a bit tiring. Am I right in thinking that you were writing Millennial Black and then after Black Lives Matter last summer, you actually stopped and wrote Anti-Racist Ally? Because you were like, actually, this is imp- I need to stop what I'm doing. I need to write something else. Yeah. So it was because, so I'd already sold Millennial Black. I saw that in December of 2019 and I was working on that through 2020. And then I wouldn't say Black Lives Matter happened. I would say George Floyd was murdered, Ahmed Aubrey was murdered, Breonna Taylor was murdered, Belly Majinga was spat in her face and she died. And so many other people whose names we don't know have been killed and continue to be killed. And I had an Instagram account that had a couple of hundred followers and I made a post about allyship because I was like, we can't solve this on our own. White people essentially need to be a part of this conversation. And suddenly I went from having, again, like two or 300 followers to having 50, 60, 70, 100,000 followers. And that made me go to my publisher and say, I'm having this conversation, people are interested, but... It's very much opt-in at the moment. You can choose to follow it, you can choose to not. I want to do something to take it into the world, to make it physical and to make it able to reach voices and people that I can't reach on Instagram. Like, your mum might not be on Instagram, but she might see a little book and be like, oh, that seems accessible. So yeah, paused Millennial Black and had nine working days to uh, write Anti-Racist Ally. Nine working days to write a book. I yeah, mean, it's quite a small book, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's still a book. Um, and I think you were um, on the Guilty Feminist podcast, um, which we are a huge fan of, huge fans of Deborah Francis White. And um, and someone was saying that, you know, it, it's a book, it's a small book, it's a very pretty book, it's a pink book. Mm-hmm. And that um, and that they that, that their children had been picking it up and reading it and and it occurred to me that it is a very good because it has as I as I say maybe because you wrote it in nine days it has real clarity and real cut through there wasn't time mm-hmm. for you to editorialize that much around mm-hmm. your thoughts and so it's a very useful educational tool your book because it is very straight talking and straightforward and um, and it, it it's it's a good tool I think to talk to children about what's going on. And what they can do going forwards. Thank you. I hadn't ever imagined it in that way. Children are very much, it's not a part of my my thought process. Not my Um, area. Not my area, area children. Um, But yeah, a number of people have now said that because it's, I think, quite small and cute and pink, their kids have picked it up and it's now part of their bedtime reading. I had someone, and this isn't about kids, I had someone who works in a prison tell me that they start their day by reading a page a day to their mostly white team and they've put it in the prison library because they want to know how to best work with the fullest range of the communities who they're meant to be serving as people who work in that prison space so the places where it's ended up and the sort of applications that it's had have been incredible and so unexpected 
in some ways it reminded, well, I was reminded of um, something called the Just for Today card in AA, which is basically a list of ways that you should live and practice by. And it's incredibly simply. And it's basically just for today, I will help someone and I will not let anyone know that mm. I've done it, i.e. Mm. no virtue signaling. Just for today, I will educate myself and I will think good thoughts and try and, you know, and I thought, my God, that's really interesting. In the same way that yours breaks down, it's, it, it, it's easy to say just for today, I'm going to, you know, because it actually, as you said, if you start thinking, oh my God, you have to change the whole system, you feel completely overwhelmed. But if you say, okay, well, today I'm going to do this, I'm going to have a conversation with my daughter. Or about I'm going to, need. or I'm going to buy from a black business, mm -hmm. um, or I'm going to, you know, uh, read and, you know, find about a new interesting book to read. And, and I think a, a, another thing that you, that you said, and it's important to understand, it's not about proving to the world or even proving to yourself that you're a good person being no. an authentic ally, is it? No, absolutely not. I think when people started talking about allyship, in sort of the middle of 2020. And obviously it's not the first time people were ever talking about it, but it kind of sort of picked up some momentum. People did seem to be talking about it a lot in terms of being a better person, being a self-improvement exercise. And I think doing that, you're really missing the point. Like, be a good person, do whatever, feel however you want to feel about yourself. I hope you feel good about yourselves. I'm not looking at you personally, although I hope <laughs> you do. But that's not the crux. The crux of allyship is never about you. It's about the people who you're meant to be an ally to. It's about the people who you're meant to be trying to make the world better for. Anything that happens for you should be incidental because that is not the focus of allyship. You talk in your book about the difference between being an anti-racist ally and a white saviour. So if you're a white saviour, then you are making it all about you, aren't you? Yeah, again, so I think that's, an, that's quite an easy distinction to make in those terms. I think that's a good distinction to make. I think white saviorism really is about, yeah, uplifting the person who's doing that thing. Oh, I went to this place and I did this thing and they want to tell you about it. I did this, like you were saying with those AA cards, like doing something and not trying to get the gratification back from it. Like, that's not the point. The point is the good that you've done, not the good that you feel about the good that you've done. Or the good that you're seen to be doing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think an interesting sort of conversation is that of white privilege and the understanding that even if you your life has not necessarily been easy, you have benefited from a system that has that prioritizes white and therefore you have the advantage. Yeah. You can say if you even if your life has been incredibly hard, that's one thing you haven't had to fight against. Yeah, that's the intersectionality conversation coming back, I think, because, yes. yeah, you could have all kinds of hardships. But if you're a person living in the West your whiteness probably isn't one of your hardships. That's just one of the areas where you haven't had to struggle, probably. Whereas other people do have to struggle with the constant knowledge and um, reality of racism. Whereas, yeah, you could really struggle because of your class. You could really struggle because of your educational background. You could really struggle because of your financial background. You could really struggle because all kinds of things, but you're not likely to struggle as a result of your race. Whereas if you are a racially marginalised people, talking about your financial background again, well, that is likely, again, to be impacted by the opportunities afforded to you in alignment with your race. There's all kinds of ways that they all play into each other. But yeah, white privilege does not mean that everything in your life has been easy. It just means that race has probably been one area where you haven't had to struggle or suffer. 
Slay in Your Lane was very, very good on, um, and um, Yomi and Elizabeth, who we love, have come on the podcast twice now, um, was very good on um, the disadvantage that black women face from early childhood. <laughs> and, um, and in Millennial Black, are you very much looking at what happens when you enter the workplace? Largely. So it starts, it starts with twice as hard for half as much which is a conversation that lots of black parents have with their black children from childhood. But then I'm, yeah, mostly looking at how that then plays out into the world of work um, at whatever level you happen to be at. Can I just say this woman did a TED Talk? (laughs) I did, four (laughs) days ago. And also your favourite TED Talk is my favourite TED Talk, which is the Brenny Brown TED Talk on vulnerability. I saw that. Um, Four days ago, you did a TED Talk. I mean, can I just congratulate you? It's beyond <laughs> it's wild it's so, so how, wild. Did, how did that feel sophie williams really strange <laughs> so because of covid it was meant to happen in december and then it happened in february but until maybe a week before we weren't sure if it was actually going to be able to happen and so it was lots of writing it and learning it and thinking like you know, the important stuff, like what am I going to wear? And (laughs) how do you do makeup when there's no glam team and you have to arrive ready to go? Yeah, and it was really strange and really bizarre. And it got moved from the Royal Festival Hall to Abbey Road, so lots and lots of changes. And I'm lucky, and it's not not a very likeable quality, but I'm lucky that I find most things come to me relatively easily. Whereas this, I had to work at, And I was like, I don't want to do this. How do I get out of this? How do I not have to do this thing that's hard? It's so Um, fucking grown up. I mean, it's like, here here I am doing my TED Talk. It's weird, (laughs) isn't it? When you have something in the diary that you maybe have sort of dreamed of or longed for, you don't know, and there's quite a lot of fear attached to it. And then you find yourself from maybe a month beforehand on a conveyor belt. And the conveyor belt is sliding towards this day in your diary. And you're like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. And then suddenly it dawns. And being in this, like I said, super open plan place, it's really hard to practice it. Like, I couldn't just walk around and just say these words all the time because my partner has to be on calls. And, and also, you know, n- not stab you because you're so <laughs> exactly, annoying. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. He's like, I know. I know about the glass cliff. I'm like, yes, this isn't for you. Um, oh, yeah, God, there she is giving her bloody TED Talk again. All she does so- is that TED Talk all day. <laughs> Yes, to the therapist. You know, I, I really would love to work in our relationship, but the TED Talk's got to go. It's got to go. Um, so, yes, you talk about the glass cliff. Are we, allowed, are we allowed a glimpse to know what the glass cliff is? Yeah, absolutely. The glass cliff is essentially what happens when people break through the glass ceiling. To lift a section from my TED Talk, I think we all have this um, shared imagination that if someone did break through the glass ceiling, it would sort of be, you know, onwards and upwards from there, sort of the sky's the limit. But in reality... Like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah. Just just the elevator that keeps going. I was really scared of that um, image of the elevator when I was a child. So was I. Um, I think that's a horrific idea. Like, suspended in a glass elevator. The most unsafe thing ever. Yeah. Okay, Anyway, sorry. that's good. Sorry. Run by an octogenarian Um, lunatic. I mean, what the fuck? (laughs) Like, sorry. (laughs) Okay, I feel seen. I feel seen in this conversation. Um, So often what happens is when underrepresented people, so underrepresented people at the most senior levels of business, so women and racially marginalised people, what we often find is that when they are given the most senior levels in business, so um, CEO, board member type of role, 
that those businesses that appoint them to those roles are more likely than average to already be in some kind of period of trouble. And so they're not performing well. And then they bring in an underrepresented leader. And because the business is already in trouble, we find that the teams disengage. We find that people stop doing their jobs very well. And so the chance of that underrepresented person being successful in their new role is limited before they even start. And so if they fail or if they fall off that cliff, the message we get back is, well, of course they did. People like that don't run successful businesses. And so it just, the cycle just continues. The business isn't doing well. So an underrepresented person is asked to take it over. So then they're not able to save it because people lose their momentum. So then they fail. So then we get the message that underrepresented people aren't good at running businesses. And it continues like that. Because the funny thing about being underrep funny, the thing about being underrepresented is, in fact, you, you, I, I've read that what you feel you're doing is representing everybody like you. Yeah. Yeah, it's a huge pressure, a huge psychological pressure. I mean, you might recognise it if you've ever been the only woman in a room or in a meeting and someone's talking about something and they look at you and there's like, well, what do women think about this? And then suddenly <laughs> yeah. you're speaking for all women. And that same thing happens with race. You know, if you're talking about something and then you're expected to be the authority on all blackness, for example. And we don't do that to white men. We don't really say, what do white men think about this? And look at one person because we sort of take that again as that baseline of normal. So it's like, what do people think versus what does your difference think? Yeah. Yeah, white men know everything about everything. That's so. And they're allowed to be individuals. In the, in the way that other marginalised groups are not really looked at as individuals, but part yes, of Yes, I don't, I don't look at some man and think, you are all white men. Yeah, and we see that really clearly when there are crimes, for example. I don't know how to express it well. I guess white men are the main perpetrators of a lot of domestic terrorism, for example. But we don't have that as an image of a terrorist because we say, oh, that one person had a mental problem that one person was this or that or felt alienated and we don't make that what we think of that whole group he's allowed individuality in a way that underrepresented or marginalized people are not and I think white men are allowed to fail as well aren't they and then still go on and get better jobs or be promoted or whatever whereas presume that doesn't happen for you know women or a marginalized other (laughs) <laughs> sorry oh, I'm sweating so badly I don't know what's wrong with me I'm really, 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 really terrible state of panic oh my god from the thing not working to the oh I mean it's tricky it's it's an intimidating thing to try and talk about and like you're saying the fear of saying the wrong thing or just messing up your words or whatever but like even talking about it imperfectly is so valuable yeah no anyway but yes exactly so we're not allowed to fail but white men are allowed to fail. Yeah, and often fail up. Yes, fail up. Oh my goodness, that's like falling up the stairs when you're drunk. (laughs) (laughs) It's not at all like falling up the stairs when you're drunk, but I'm always astounded at myself when I manage to fall up the stairs when I'm drunk. Oh, that's not good, I've had a few too many. When uh, when Millennial Black is up and flying and you're doing more amazing things, will you come back and, and sort of, you know, 
suffer more of this. <laughs> yes, I will come back and enjoy more of this. By the end of it, I'm even looking right at you both on the screen. Look at us, we're like a house on fire. We're vibing. Oh, we're all breathing again. <laughs> Thank you so so much. And um, if you if you buy Sophie's book, there's there there we'll put we'll put some of them on our Instagram. But there are some good reading lists, some good social media suggestions, and um, there's there's a lot of things that we can all do every day that will um, not do us any harm might do other people a lot of good so thank you guys for listening sophie thank you so much thank you you've been listening to annabelle rifkin and emily mcmeekin of the middle our book i'm absolutely fine is out now if you like what you hear please rate review and subscribe and we'll just leave you with this thought it's a good day to have a good day 